0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Welcome to Sojourn. Um, if, if you haven't been here before, uh, my name's Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, uh, my pleasure and honor to get to uh, speak from God's word this morning Um, I would just highly encourage you to engage with any of those methods of connecting that Carlos uh, just put before you. We really uh, do hope, pray, and believe that Sojourn will be more than an event uh, just to attend uh, in your weekly schedule, but rather a people that you belong to throughout uh, your weekly schedule and who you enjoy that weekly schedule with. And so, uh, again, if there's anything that we haven't addressed in terms of questions, um, we would love to address those questions for you. I will also uh, be in the gallery after the gathering and available uh, to answer any of these, any of those for you. Um, with that said, uh, Carlos did mention that we're jumping into a, uh, a new sermon series uh, for the next five weeks, where we're talking through essentially um, what are the five uh, basic theological principles of uh, the Reformation. And, and Carlos mentioned it already, but Tuesday, this Tuesday, October thirty-first, which um, we traditionally celebrate as Halloween, is actually also um, the anniversary of Reformation Day, or the the day uh, that many would recognize uh, as the event that formally kicked off the Protestant Reformation in Europe. It was the day uh, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to uh, the church door there in Wittenberg as an attempt uh, to begin serious discussion, serious reform uh, within the church of the day. And so the next five weeks we're going to talk about that historical moment Um because it is a significant historical moment, not only in the history of the world, um, but also, of course, within the history of the church. And so these um, five basic theological principles are often referred to as the five solas, sola meaning uh, alone or only in, in Latin. Um, and so some of us may be wondering why we want to remember something uh, that's, both pretty far away in our past 500 years um, and something that might be difficult kind of to interpret in terms of its historical meaning um, for us today Um, and quite a bit of debate as to whether or not it was a a good event or a bad event and yet uh, I think there's two good reasons that we as Christians generally should be students of history and some of you guys are shutting off right now. and, and I'll admit that I'm biased as a, as a history major. But, <laughs> number one, history is important because, I'm just going to give you two reasons. History is important because our faith is rooted in human history. Jesus himself, God, doesn't communicate to us from outside of human history, but rather steps into it um, and, and, and embraces it for what it is. He steps into that timeline, that narrative. And then number two, um, it's important because in the Bible, we're frequently told to remember God's work in human history. We're frequently called to remember what God has done. And so essentially what God is doing when he's telling us to remember, when he's asking us to remember, is he's inviting us to remember or to be reminded that he has historically been good, faithful, gracious, merciful, and more. And so reflecting on history is an invitation and an opportunity to observe God's trustworthiness throughout all of it. And so as we remember, as we commemorate the Reformation and the theological principles that revived the church in that day, we're not trying to lionize a particular person or even a particular position so much as we're trying to remember God's faithfulness and consistently calling his people back to himself. And so, listen, we, uh, this is a longer introduction than normal, but we can't talk about the five solas of the Reformation apart from the historical context in which they were established. And so, uh, the, the Protestant Reformation, uh, again, which happened five, 500 years ago uh, in Europe, was essentially a question within the church of authority. Which is why we start this morning with sola scriptura, or scripture alone. You see, at the time, within the church, the authority of the Pope and church tradition were greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible, God's word. And so as a member of the Roman Catholic Church in that day you weren't necessarily accountable for believing and doing what the Bible says so much as you were accountable for believing and doing what the church said the pope or the priests. And so when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses he essentially formally questioned that that organizational chart right that hierarchy is what Martin Luther brought into question. And he questioned that under the conviction that the Pope and the priests, the leaders in the church, this system that he belonged to, had failed to align themselves appropriately with God's word, that they had contradicted even God's word in the Bible. And so it was It was Luther's conviction that God's word should be followed in that case. That where man's thinking or man's tradition went one way and God's word went another, we would always and necessarily follow God's word. And yet, we must remember this as we talk about the Reformation. We must remember that Luther's goal was not to see a new church born out of an old church, but rather to see the church Reformed according to what he believed was the right application of God's word or the importance of God's word. And so that's why the first of the 95 theses is not necessarily a call out of someone else, but rather Martin Luther saying that all of the Christian life, his included, is to be one characterized by repentance. A call for everyone to constantly, consistently measure themselves against the unchanging standard of God's word and then to recognize their failures and turn to Jesus for grace in those failures. And so as we talk about sola scriptura or scripture alone this morning, um, let's go into it with that in mind. Let's pray and we'll jump into the word. Father, we're grateful to be gathered together this morning. Lord, we're grateful uh, that this morning we have your word in our language. And Lord, that you would choose to come and make yourself known, not only in human flesh in a way that we could understand, but also in human writing in a way that we could understand. Uh, Lord, that you would give us a word that is both clear and sufficient, in terms of what we need to know about you and who you are and what you have done on our behalf, Lord, that is a grace. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, enter your word this morning, God, that we would, in fact, hear your voice, God, calling us softly, tenderly, Lord, to behold you for all that you are in your great glory. And so, Lord, we... Uh, we come knowing that we are in need, and we come trusting that this word is sufficient for that need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the first thing I want to do each week, as we kind of unpack the solas, is is obviously um, to first go to God's word, and there's there's two reasons for that. Number one, the Reformation at its core, again, was about the authority of God's word and its delivery to common men and women. In fact. You and I are sitting here with a Bible in our language in large part in thanks to the events of the Reformation. And then two, I want to show that these principles of the Reformation are in fact biblical principles. And so the Reformation was less about innovation so much as it was about going back to a foundation that had already been established in ages past. And so... Where in the Bible does it tell us that the Bible, God's word, is our ultimate authority? Well, we just read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to read it one more time. He says this, But as for you, this is Paul writing to his protege Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so what does Paul tell Timothy? Paul, Paul, uh, what, what we don't know uh, from just those verses is that Paul is, is ill. It's, it's about to be his time. He senses that... Um, that his time is coming to an end, and so he's delivering sort of all that he can to, to Timothy so that this ministry, this work of ministry might continue. And he calls him to remember all that he has learned and to continue in it. And how he's been acquainted with the sacred writings. And he tells us essentially two things about about these sacred writings or God's Word or the Scriptures or the Bible, as we would call it in our modern vernacular. He says two things. He says that these Scriptures are able to make one wise for salvation through faith. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is that these Scriptures that he has been acquainted with from childhood are the road map to truth. And that, as that road map, the scriptures actually lead men and lead women to the knowledge of the truth, that there is salvation available to us, and that it comes from God, and that it is made available to us by grace through faith. Right? That it's in the scriptures, and that it's going to these sacred writings, that we are made wise for that, that our eyes are opened to see the wisdom of God's salvation for us. And then he goes on to elaborate later in verse 16 when he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Or some of your translations might say God-breathed, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And I like that because it's, one, a little bit unnatural, um, but, it, but it conveys, I think, more appropriately what it is that, that, that Paul is written in the original Greek because this word, God-breathed, is one word and it's a, it's a word that we see in no greek writing in any literature biblical or otherwise before this moment and so paul is paul is speaking to the unique nature of scripture by stressing its divine origin right and thus, what logically follows from that is its divine authority, that if it comes from God, then it comes with the authority that is vested in God. And so Paul does not point to the human authors of Scripture as inspired people, right? But he says the writings themselves, he says all of Scripture is breathed out by God, that they're, it's as if they were spoken by God himself. And that it's this divine origin and it's this divine power and it's this divine authority that changes us, that makes us wise and makes it useful for us in our continuing or ongoing training, right? Correction, reproof, rebuke, training in righteousness. Because Scripture comes from God Himself, all of it is profitable in a number of ways. Meaning, God has not wasted space in His Word, but that all of it is profitable for us. And so, to summarize, the Bible is clear, meaning that it, it is able to make us wise, it is able to open our eyes to salvation by faith in Jesus, right? It's able to do that, it's clear, and it's sufficient. It has what we need so that we can be trained in righteousness, so that we can grow into everything that God purposes for us to be through the work of his son, Jesus. And so it's clear and sufficient. It is all that we need and we can understand it. That's another way to put it, right? The All that we need to know God and to do what God wants. Now, we could easily close the book and go home right now which might sound great to some of us, but I want us to see that this verse isn't an isolated biblical concept. It, and what I mean by that is that I didn't just find the one verse that said something similar to what I wanted to say and then said, okay, that, that works great. Now I can say what I want to say. But rather that, that what we're reading here in Timothy is something that is on the pages of the entire Bible from beginning to end. This is a biblical theme, the authority and the source of God's word. So let's go to the Old Testament. And you don't have to turn there if you don't want with me, but we're going to be in Deuteronomy 32. Um, and we're going to jump around quite a bit. So if you were like me and you grew up like old school Baptist and you were in Royal Ambassadors or Girls in Action, right? And you had to compete, uh, c- compete in Bible drill, right? Or someone would just throw out like a... A verse and the first one to get there, right? This is your dream this morning. <laughs> this is what all of that hard work and training was preparing you for this moment right now. Deuteronomy 32. So we're in Deuteronomy 32, right? Moses writes uh, the book of Deuteronomy. He's received the law from God, he's written it down for God's people. That's what he spent 31 chapters doing. And Moses is about to die, and this is is, these are some of his last words. Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 46. And he said to them, meaning God's people, the Israelites, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And so we learn three things from this text, and it, it's not—it's not dissimilar; it's not unfamiliar to us, having just read Second Timothy. Right, the word of which Moses spoke was written down. God's word comes to Moses on the mountain. He right you. Chisels it out in the little tablet, right? God's word has come to God's people. The people could and should and in fact must listen to that word, learn from it, right? Grow their children up in it and it's in this word that they would find life, right? It is able to make them wise for salvation by faith. And so we see a striking unity, even though Deuteronomy is written centuries, not even centuries, millennia before Paul ever writes his instructions to Timothy. And so even in the Old Testament, the sufficiency and the clarity of God's word is attested to. The the sufficiency of these scriptures, these writings that we've been given And what you'll notice in here is that even though there is a very formal, hierarchical structure within the people of God, you have priests, and you have Levites, and you have prophets, and you have scribes, right? You have all of these sort of people who are vested in the teaching of God's Word. But you'll notice that Moses doesn't mention any of those things. He mentions the word alone because the word on its own was sufficient for them. It was enough. And that's not to say that the priests, the prophets, the scribes weren't helpful or even authoritative in their own way, but they were helpful and authoritative insofar as they applied the word of God to God's people. That was their job. It wasn't to introduce them to their authority. It was to introduce them to God's authority in His word to live out and to apply God's Word. And so this is why, brothers and sisters, and and this goes for, for you whether you plan on coming back next week or not coming back next week. This is why you shouldn't bother listening too much to pastors or preachers who don't talk primarily about God's Word. We pastors and preachers are only helpful or authoritative insofar as we apply the Word of God to God's people. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we get up every week, and we say it every week, that we go to the Scriptures because we believe that the person and the work of Jesus is most clearly revealed there for us, and that is what we need. And not just on Sundays. But so here's what we've seen so far, right? It's not just Moses and it's not just Paul who believe that the scriptures they conveniently wrote down are the ultimate authority, right? We're, go- we're kind of like looking at this and going, this is pretty self-serving, right? Like Paul says all the scriptures are God-breathed and he wrote some of them, so that, that helps, right? And then Pope Moses here saying the same thing, right? But it's not just those two who believe that the scriptures our ultimate authority for the follower of Jesus, the the people of God. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus himself. He's about to begin his ministry. Uh, He's been baptized by John the Baptist, and he is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by by Satan. So he's going to endure focused temptation from Satan in the wilderness. And this is what happens. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, and the tempter, Satan, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only, shall you serve? Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. And so Jesus faces the very temptation of Satan on his own in the desert. He is hungry, he is thirsty, and he faces this temptation as the Son of God, but also as a man. The true and better Adam who would... Rather than capitulating to temptation, resist on our behalf. And and how does he face the temptation? It's pretty remarkable because he he doesn't appeal to the oral tradition of Israel, he doesn't appeal to the authority of the rabbis or of the Sanhedrin, he didn't even appeal to his own divinity. Or his, his own inspiration, the, the Holy Spirit dwells in Jesus permanently in this moment. He doesn't, he doesn't refer to that. Our Savior, in the face of temptation, turned again and again and again to the Scriptures. That's why he says, it is written. It is written. Each and every one of those times, he's quoting directly from the written Word of God. And that was all he needed to say. There's no exposition. There's no expounding. He just says, this is what God's word says. Boom, done. Don't you wish my sermon was like that. (laughs) It is written. That is all he needed to say. The scriptures had made him wise. They had equipped Jesus for every good work. They were clear as he implied that even Satan knew them. And when Satan quoted Scripture, intentionally misapplying it, Jesus did not turn to some other authority. He went back to the Scriptures and said, It is also written. And so, brothers and sisters, it is the work of the devil to misapply God's Word. And so Jesus teaches us that we must look more deeply into the written Word, not away from it, in those moments in those moments where we may feel there's a lack of clarity, in those moments where we may feel like it's assaulting our conscience, the the wise thing to do in that moment is to press in. And so what we've seen thus far is Moses, Jesus, and Paul all speaking in unison on the clarity, the sufficiency, the authority of God's written word, the scriptures. And so I think Hopefully what, what we can gather from that, not only across the breadth of time, but across the pro- arguably the three most authoritative writers in God's word, contributors to God's word, are all speaking in unison to us that God's word is those three things. It is clear, it is sufficient, it is authoritative. And so if scripture alone is our highest authority, what happens when we compromise? And what happens when we believe? Let's talk first about what happens when we compromise. It's really pretty simple. When we accept another authority as supreme or even equal to the word of God, two things happen. The first one is this, we fool ourselves. We fool ourselves. Romans chapter 1 says this, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's clear. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been Brothers and sisters, the problem in Rome in this moment is not so different from our problem now. In that to accept another authority is to worship at another altar. And in so doing, we exchange God's glory, Paul says, for idols made of, in our day, microchips and anodized aluminum. the glory of God for the created thing. And in that moment, we think it is a wise choice. We we really and truly believe that. That's why he says that they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so we fool ourselves. But it doesn't it doesn't stop there. We don't just become foolish. We then act foolishly. We fall into sin, right? Romans 1 goes on to tell us that by worshiping an idol, they gave themselves over to all manner of unrighteousness and that their minds were debased or, or like that their minds actually suffered a, a, a degradation, right? That their minds degraded. They didn't progress in their knowledge. They, they regressed in their understanding of the world. And that when that happened, they were given over to all manner of unrighteousness. And this is what happens to us. When we accept another authority as higher than or equal to God's word, it's as if someone was standing by the light dimmer and gradually pushing the dimmer down. And what was once clear and what was once evident, not only in God's Word, but even in the creation, Paul says, evident and clear, what was clear to us before, all of a sudden starts to look a little less clear. The edges are not as sharp. And eventually, what was once clear becomes entirely dark. And they disappear altogether. And so it's pretty straightforward, right? The, it's pretty straightforward what happens when we compromise, when we as Christians compromise on the authority, the clarity, the sufficiency of God's Word for all that we need in regards to life and godliness. And so I think the question that I have, and, and the question that I'm most concerned about with this morning is is How? right not i i know what happens when we compromise so how how is it that we arrive at this place where what was clear and what was evident has become unclear and not so evident and i think the answer for us is back in second timothy immediately following Paul's charge to, t- to Timothy is reminding him what the Scripture is and, and of its clarity, of its sufficiency. He then says this in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming. And get this, this is, this is how it happens. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So how do we end up compromising? Paul's pretty clear. We accumulate for ourselves teachers that suit our passions meaning we only listen to what we want to hear. If it sounds good, it's true. Brothers and sisters, we have a stern warning this morning from Paul and from the remainder of God's Word that that is foolish. You see, in our time today, We are being told to live our truth instead of the truth. And it is the sickness of our generation. It is the reason that the world looks the way it looks. It is the reason that we look around and we go, why are our minds so debased? Why is all manner of unrighteousness manifesting itself in the world from the White House down to the lowest common denominator of culture. Why is that? It's because we've become foolish. It's because our minds are darkened and we've given ourselves over to all manner of unrighteousness. It is because we have accepted another authority. And so let me be very clear this morning. We do not have truth if it never calls us out. If it never challenges us, we should beware. Because we might be abandoning sound teaching. We might be the people here that Paul warns one day will line up for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And we might just wander off into myths. On the other side of the coin, what happens when we believe? We know what happens when we compromise, what happens when we believe. Well, first off, we already said this, right? We can actually know God, that the Scriptures, when we go to them, and when we trust them, and when we believe them, we, we can be made wise for salvation by faith. We can know God, we can know Him, we can know His Son who He has brought to us in body and flesh who has lived and died and is now resurrected for us, ascended to God's right hand. We can know that He is faithful and gracious and merciful and loving and kind and that He longs to draw us underneath His wing and that He longs to be gracious to us and extend to us the mercy of repentance. All of those things we can know. We can know God, the one God of the universe. We can know as we read His Word to us, which is astounding in and of itself. But there are benefits that extend even beyond that. And I'm going to conclude for us this morning in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so it's not only that we can know God and that we can know what he's like and we can be known by God, but the psalmist tells us that in the same moment, in that same moment that we can know God and be known by God, in that moment our souls can be revived. Our simple minds can be made wise. Our hearts can viscerally and truly rejoice. Our eyes can be enlightened. So rather than the dimming and the lack of clarity in the world, by reading the word, the world becomes more clear. 4K understanding of what's happening in our midst. And... Maybe more wonderful than, than even all of those things is that in God's word we are satisfied. He says that, that there are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now look, I don't know about you, but there would be an intense amount of satisfaction if somebody dropped a couple million dollars in my bank account right now. And yet the psalmist tells us that when we go to God's word, we find riches greater than that, satisfaction greater than that, desires met more than those dollars could Meet our desires. I'm usually pretty happy when I've got a mouthful of honey. I don't do it very often because it's kind of weird, <laughs> but it tastes good. It's satisfying, not only to the taste, but it's satisfying to my hunger. And the psalmist tells us that that's what God's word is for us; that it gives us this level of satisfaction. When we see it for what it is, the spoken word of God to us. Calvin, another one of the reformers, said this. We all get scared when we hear his name, but it's okay, I promise. (laughs) Calvin said this. Calvin said, Scripture is God speaking to us as a father speaks to his children. You see, the reformers taught that God gave us Scripture as His word of truth and of power. As His word of truth, we can trust Scripture for time and for eternity. That's what the psalmist is saying. And as the word of power, we can look to Scripture to transform and renew our minds through the Spirit of God. That power, brothers and sisters, must be manifested in our homes, in our churches, in our life together. You see, while other books may inform or even reform us. Only one book can transform us and conform us to the image and likeness of Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, this principle of sola scriptura is, is m- magnificently important for us this morning. So my question is, I, I think many of us would, would agree with this principle, We probably would have even before this sermon, and yet, do we search, love, live, pray over the Holy Scriptures? Is the Bible the compass that leads us through the storms and over the waves that we encounter in our lives? Is the Scripture, as James 1 says, the mirror by which we dress ourselves? Is it, as Galatians 6 says, the rule by which we work? Is it, as Psalm 119 says, the water with which we wash? Is it... uh, As Luke 24 says, the fire that warms us. Is it, as Job 23 says, the food that nourishes us? Is it, as Ephesians 6 says, the sword with which we arm ourselves? Is it, as Psalm 119.24 says, the counselor who resolves our doubts and fears and the heritage that enriches us? Are we learning from Scripture, as John Flavel said, the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most profitable way of dying? My prayer is that we would be a Word-shaped people and that we would know that in giving us His Word, God is inviting us today and every day to come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word by which we can know you. We thank you that it is clear, that it is sufficient, that it is authoritative. And we thank you, Lord, that by it we can know that we are invited to a real physical meal with you. And Lord, that as we come to the table this morning, the the real physical nourishment that we get when we eat bread and when we drink juice, Lord, that same nourishment is available to us in the Spirit by Your Word. And thank You for offering it to us freely. Thank You for the cost You were willing to pay to ensure that it was delivered to us in giving Your Son to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, and to rise in victory over the sin that besets us, the death that condemns us. And to now sit at the right hand of the Father and plead on our behalf. And so, Lord, we come to the table this morning rejoicing, with our hearts rejoicing, knowing that we have in our hands what is to be more desired than gold, what is sweeter than dripping honey. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.